Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Uh, it is Saturday, March the 4th, 2023. Regular viewers, listeners to the show know done a lot of shows on women, women in today's society, their doubts, their challenges, their aspirations. And also we've done a lot of show on medical, uh, a lot of shows on the dysfunctionality, the problems with the American medical system. We're combining that today, and we actually combined it uh, a couple of weeks ago with uh, a writer, Lynn Cullen. Uh, we did a show with Lynn on the woman who pioneered the polio vaccine and changed the world. Uh, Lynn wrote about this uh, in her new novel, The Woman with the Cure, which is very much based on the life story of a professor at the Yale School of Medicine, Dorothy M. Horseman. What was unusual about Horseman is she lacked um, self-confidence. She was full of doubt, and that's why she's not a household name. My guest on the show today might not quite be yet a household name, but like Horseman, she's a medical pioneer. And like Horseman, she's done a, a great deal of good already for humanity. Uh, unlike Horseman, she now has a book. Uh, it's called Without a Doubt, uh, Serbisana, How to Go from Underrated to Unbeatable. She's a very successful medical executive. She founded a a medical company, which she sold, um, and now she uh, works for Y Combinator, one of the top incubator uh, investors in San Francisco. She's based just up the road from me in Noe Valley, uh, so I'm thrilled that uh, Serbi is joining us. Serbi Sano, without a doubt. Uh, Serbi, did you sometimes have doubts? Is the story of your book how you went from doubt to somehow emancipating yourself of it? Hi, thank you so much for having me today. And uh, no, not at all. I find myself um, quite full of doubt even today about various things. In fact, I think uh, a little bit of doubt is uh, good for you. It what, it's what keeps you aware. It's what keeps you grounded. Um, instead, and what I mean by without a doubt is without a doubt, I knew that I was working on something that people needed, that people wanted. And so even when I had my own self-doubt about my capabilities, even when I was receiving doubt from the outside world, I was able to keep going because I was without a doubt working on something that patients truly needed. Uh, the subtitle of your book is How to Go from Underrated to Unbeatable. Do we still have a problem, Serbi, in our society about underrating women, uh, women? Um, particularly uh, in a professional field uh, like the one you're in. As I said, um, certainly uh, Dorothy Horseman was underrated, which is why we don't talk about her as much as, as the, the men who found the cure for polio. Is Do we still have a problem with underrating women? We absolutely have a problem underrating women. In fact, we not only underrate women in a professional sense, but because we underrated women for such a long time in society and didn't even include women in clinical trials where the drugs aren't even optimized for women, it's optimized for the male body, we've un we continue to underrate the importance of women's health. 
right? So some of the most common conditions impacting women, for example, endometriosis impacts 10% of all women. And on average, it still takes nine years to diagnose, you know? So yes, being underrated in a professional sense definitely still happens. And the impact of that is so severe because it impacts our health as well, right? And you see one of the highest uh, maternal um, death rates during birth in the U.S. still. So, I mean, do you think it's any coincidence that your own career in, in, a, in an odd way was triggered by your own experience within the health system as a patient? No, not at all. I think they are directly related. You know, I remember that moment so vividly, uh, you know, passing out in pain because I had this cyst. I remember being rolled in to the hospital and they almost did uh, surgery for appendicitis. And, you know, seconds before the surgeon re realized, no, this isn't what's ailing her. And the next day when I could get an ultrasound, they realized I was suffering from a complex ovarian cyst. But what they couldn't tell me for months is whether or not that cyst was cancerous. And the options that my parents faced, if you can even call it that, the uh, challenge that my family faced was that we could either do a surgery to investigate the cyst further, but if it was cancerous, it would risk spreading the cancer further. If they tried to remove the cyst, they might have to remove the entire ovary. Or we could sit and wait and see if I was developing a very aggressive form of cancer because ovarian cancer is still one of the most lethal forms of cancer impacting women today. And you know, six months later in a burst of pain, the cyst dissolved. But I realized during that time period, as I studied about my own condition, I had some amazing teachers that kind of helped me do this. As I studied my own condition, the abysmal state that women's health was in. So that was at the point in time where it became sort of my life's mission to better the state of women's health. How old were you when this happened? I was only 13 when I had my first cyst. And uh, where did you grow up in the United States? I grew up in, in first a small town that's about an hour and uh, south and east of San Francisco called Fremont. And uh, there's a you know a heavy South Asian Asian population there. Then I moved to a small town called Saratoga, um, and I went to school in San Jose. Serbi, uh, so I mean obviously men could also experience uncertainty in the health system. Um, but is there something about the women's body which has compounded the experience you had? Or is it a problem with that? Or was it or is it a problem with the health system that perhaps implicitly or otherwise people don't quite take women's health as seriously as men's health? So look, for the longest time, when everyone who is a physician, everyone who is researching the science, everyone who is investing, spending the money on science, on research for decades is men. Well, people naturally want to invest in and talk to and associate with problems they can relate to. You know, um, there's just a different level of gravitation towards something that you think you might suffer from one day, or you can very readily relate to compared to something you can't, you know? So I think that inherently caused a lot of issues in the women's health field. Then there's also this 
issue that continues today where for some reason, women, when they voice their concerns about their own health, aren't quite taken seriously. You know, the word hysterectomy derives from hysterical, right? And them thinking, oh, if we take out the uterus, then this woman will be less hysterical, right? So for some reason, there's this inherent belief that women are exaggerating their own conditions, you know, which absolutely has not been the case in all of the research and investigating in women's health that I've done. We did a show uh, earlier this week with the uh, novelist um, Andrea Dunlop. She she just wrote a novel about um, uh, a feminist novel, and and she describes today as a rage-inducing moment to be a woman. You don't seem to be a particularly rageful person, but do you think there's there's good reason to be angry as a woman. She was actually speaking specifically about in the wake of the the, the, the Roe versus Wade uh, issue on the Supreme Court. Do you think women in some ways have better reason to be rageful than men, particularly in the context of healthcare? Yeah, definitely. We have so many good, good reasons to be angry. You know, but there's this Emerson quote that I love, which is a good indignation brings out all one's power. So I don't think it's a bad thing that we're collectively angry right now and upset and identifying the problems and acknowledging them and speaking to them. You know, this is a time of change, even though the numbers are still abysmal, even though only 2% of venture funding is still going to women, even though we don't have enough representation in government, at least the numbers are now higher than they've ever been, you know? So I think that carrying this anger forward as long as you're able to funnel it into something productive and focus is a good thing. Well, you it's angry. not good that we have to be angry, but it's good. It can be used for good. Anger can be used for good. Were you, um, were you angry after your experience as a, as a 13 year old? Is that one of the things that drove you to become a medical successful medical executive? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And the anger and that indignation is what drove me past all of the hurdles that I faced. It's what drove me past how difficult it was for me to fundraise, you know, the 50 plus rejections I got, how difficult it was for me at first to find an engineer to work on it because most engineers are men. You know, it's what drove me for so many years. And Part of it, you know, part of anger, you know, the twin emotion to anger is sadness, right? And so I used to get LinkedIn messages from patients all the time saying, you know, my mother just passed away with ovarian cancer. My sister's suffering from ovarian cancer. And, you know, there's this sadness and then this anger that comes from it. And I definitely use that as fuel. We had a saying at my company at my startup, which was patients are waiting, you know, so certainly anger is part of what drove me forward. So you ended up at uh, UC Berkeley. Um, and, and then what, uh, Serbi? So I ended up at UC Berkeley. And because I had this scare in high school, I knew I wanted to study something that would help me better understand the human body. So I studied molecular and cell biology. I did research in bioengineering. And then afterwards had to make the decision about whether to, you know, get a de- higher degree, go into academia or get some work experience first and decided that I would first go to a larger company to understand what processes look like and then go to a startup, which I did. And then 
I was about 25 when I started Envision and started working on the early detection of ovarian cancer. And what's the story of, of that startup? Yeah, so um, the problem with detecting ovarian cancer even today is that the main means of diagnosing it are, are incredibly inaccurate. So first you have an ultrasound, but unfortunately the ultrasound can't always tell you whether or not the cyst that you're seeing is cancerous. It only tells you that there's something there. Then there's a blood test called CA-125, which measures a protein called uh, CA-125 in the blood. But unfortunately, CA-125 is elevated even by many benign conditions. So there are 600,000 procedures each year where the ovaries are removed and only 20,000 cases of ovarian cancer. And still most ovarian cancers are caught late, right? So this just removal of um, anatomy that happens because these tests are so inaccurate. I mean, it, it's, it's through the roof. So the concept behind Envision was that if we could collect cells from the fallopian tubes in a non-invasive way, meaning no incisions, we could capture cells that were shed into the fallopian tube from the ovary and similar to a pap smear, look at those cells on an annual basis for abnormalities. So that was the, the science and the technology upon which Envision was born. What broader lessons? I mean, not everyone perhaps has your intellectual ability to study these very challenging subjects to go to UC Berkeley, but what broader lessons do you think your early career offers to young women i'm sure yeah. that, i know you've got a big following on linkedin um your your work your public speaking is very popular what do you tell a young woman if 17 18 who wants to grow up in a sense to become serbisana but doesn't quite know how i think the important the most important decision that i made in my entire career was to continue to put one step in front of the other put one foot in front of the other and not stop even in the face of doubt, and not stop even in the face of my own self-doubt, right? You have to find something that you're passionate enough about doing, that you care enough about doing, that will help you overcome your own doubt and others' doubt as you try to achieve whatever goal you put in front of you, okay? So that's, a, that's a, the biggest thing, is don't let that doubt stop you. The other thing is, Yes, unconscious bias does exist and it should be acknowledged and it should be talked about, but don't walk into a room actively fearing it because you have a job to do, right? Let's say that you're fundraising and you're trying to raise money or you're trying to do a really good job on a presentation for a promotion. That is already so much pressure, so much mental stress. If you add on top of that, this layer of thinking about whether or not unconscious bias exists in the room, it's going to take away from that mental focus. And it's perfectly fine to think about it before, to think about it after, to reflect on it. But look, if those people harbor unconscious bias or are blatantly sexist, you don't want to work with them anyway. You can only do your best, right? So just be in the moment, do your best, and be really knowledgeable about whatever subject it is you're speaking about. I brought up Dorothy Horseman at the beginning. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work or her history, but um, do you feel as a, a contemporary 
pioneer, I guess, of, of medical technology and innovation, that you have, in a way, a, a responsibility for the, the horsemen's of the past who aren't remembered, who didn't get credit for what they did. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is something I think about all the time. And I often meet these women in my career, you know, who are, you know, let's say two or even three decades older than me. And I just cannot imagine the things that they had to go through and just how incredible they must have been, how talented, both in terms of raw talent, but in having a thick skin and pushing through everything. And so almost every time I have a chance, if I'm giving a talk, I will refer back to these women who've played such a big role in my life and not just lifting me up and putting them, putting me on their shoulders whenever they could because they did, but also because representation matters because me being able to see them in the positions that they got to, even when I knew that they were being underrated for what they had achieved, that was very clear to me as well compared to the men who were in similar situations, it gave me a potential path to follow. It gave me someone to be a role model after, you know? And so absolutely women from the decades, which was, you know, even more terrible situation than mine. Um, yes, absolutely. I feel that responsibility. You're clearly quite bold, although perhaps more, uh, on camera, maybe not always, as you suggested in your life. We've done some shows on boldness, one with the, the writer Christy Hunter Ascott, who has a book uh, on beginning boldly. Um, is boldness the real fix here? And, and how does one learn to become bold? Because if you don't have confidence, it's always so easy to say, well, just become more confident. But that's uh, self-evident and, and not very convincing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's small things that you can do to kind of make yourself more comfortable. One of those is actually doing some work on what does make you feel more comfortable, right? For me, and a lot of women that I invest in now, one of the things I find is that the more knowledge a woman has, the more confident she feels when she speaks. And you would think that this is a global thing that should apply not just to women, but um I think with women, there's a certain threshold of data or knowledge that they want to have before they can speak on a subject. So I would say that really reading everything you can get your hands on, uh, at least for me, does increase my confidence whenever I'm speaking on a certain subject as an expert. Um, and at the, at the end of the day, though, at the same time, keeping space for the fact that there's no way for you to know everything and trusting your gut once you do have a certain level of data, right? And that's where the boldness comes out. The other, the other issue is that women for so long have been taught not to be aggressive. And, you know, a group of men, and I've been in this situation before, can be almost yelling at each other. And so if I raise my voice just enough to be like heard over the yelling or just to speak, you know, everyone's like taken back because they're not used to a woman raising her voice at all, you know, or just speaking loudly at all, speaking with any amount of sort of anger or aggression. And at some point, it's a certain amount of aggression is needed for career success. And so part of it, and this is, I do this a lot with my 
amazing, brilliant female founders that I work with, just giving them permission to be aggressive, giving them permission to be bold. You just need someone out there that says, hey, just go for it. That thing that you want to say, just say it. And not to be impolite at all, right? That's not, you know, it's not like about being rude, but it's about expressing your own opinion when it comes to you and feeling confident in doing that. Your book is called Without a Doubt, um, How to Go from Underrated to Unbeatable. Well, it, it, it doesn't, it, the title isn't Without a Female Doubt. Um, is, is there an, uh, is, is this just a book for women or do you, are you looking for, for male readers and you think that you have lessons for young men too? Yeah, there's certainly, there's certainly lessons for men in there as well, right? We all feel self-doubt. Um, and I think there's certain groups, you know, people of color, women that will feel that doubt more because society is structured in such a way where we're received a lot of doubt, but certainly there's a lot of practical tips in there, you know, on fundraising, on leadership, on team building, which apply to anyone in a professional sense. We did a show with my friend Matt Higgins uh, recently. He has a new book out, Burn the Boats. Uh, Matt Higgins, many many viewers and listeners will remember, is uh, a recurring shark on Shark Tank. He believes that to be successful, you shouldn't have a plan B, that plan B needs to go out the window. Do you agree with him? Yeah, I, I sort of do, actually. I think I rarely see founders who are successful if they keep one foot in a different boat that maybe feels a little bit more secure to them, I think that you do kind of have to be all in on whatever you're doing and completely obsessed about it. And I know that obsessed is not a sexy word and obsession is not a sexy word, but I do think, especially when it comes to starting a company that you sort of need to be thinking about the idea, the concept, the challenges, the team, the culture day in and day out. And um, at least from a professional sense, right? At, at least the time that you're devoting to your profession. Um, I can't imagine anyone really being successful. And of course, there's exceptions, but you know, I can't really imagine most founders being successful if they, you know, have that plan B at that ready. You know, part of it, part of it should feel like if this doesn't work you know, the uh, ground beneath me is going to cave in. And that's part of what gives you the motivation to pick, to figure out hurdles when they come your way. Yeah, maybe uh, the female way of putting it is without a doubt, whereas the males, men would say, burn the boats. Um, <laughs> they're, they're saying the same thing, but in female and male language. What's your relationship with Biora? Um, I know you're a, a board member of Biora. I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah. You mean... So once the once the company um, was acquired by Boston Scientific in 2018, this was started, your startup. Yes, my startup Envision was acquired by Boston Scientific in 2018. I started sort of thinking about what was next, and I actually thought I was going to take some time off and therefore collected a variety of um, of uh, board positions. And so I the first publicly traded company that I sat on the board of is um, Penumbra, which I still sit on the board of. And then the second one was Biora. And so uh, Biora is now a therapeutics company based in San Diego, uh, working on gastrointestinal disorders. 
And yeah, I was struck with Bayora. I mean, when I was looking at it, their, their entire executive team, with the exception of the head of HR, is male. It's it's still a it's still a very biased industry, isn't it? So it is. It it is. It is that you know that that picture that you showed me is an uncommon. Uh, luckily, um, Penumbra is about fifty fifty on their leadership team. Um. So it's something that I'm very much aware of and I actively work on. So uh, to give an example, now that I'm at Y Combinator, which is an early stage investor and company, uh, in the last two years... Yeah, you're, you're, you're the first ever partner for healthcare and biotech and, and everybody wants to be associated with, uh, with, bio, with uh, Y Combinator. <laughs> yeah, it's a great place to be to kind of get a front seat to innovation, the newest innovation, cutting edge innovation as it's happening. Uh, but there in the last two years, I've invested in 22 women's health companies, which I think makes me at least one of the most prolific investors in women's health in the world. Um, so, you know, this is still a problem I'm keenly aware of and trying to do something about. What's your feeling? Feeling more broadly about the, the problems with the medical system, uh, one of the interviews I saw online suggested you want your company to empower patients. There's lots of talk of empowering patients through new technology, but we've done many shows about the dysfunctionality of the American healthcare system, the profound inequalities, the injustices, and the corrupt monopolistic nature of the system. Uh, are you... You, you said you were rage inducing. These are rage inducing times when it comes to women's health. Are you also angry about the dysfunctionality of the American health system? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, every so th this is a, this is a tough one for me because at the same time, I'm so incredibly grateful for our medical system. Three weeks ago, I spent the whole day in the ER with my six-year-old son, and I was absolutely terrified because, you know, he just, he had a stomach bug, but that morning he was barely responsive. And I was terrified as a mother, racing to the ER. But then as soon as we get there, we were swept away in the arms of these amazing nurses and <clears throat> medical device after medical device, drug after drug kind of brought him back to us. And as flawed as the system as there is, as much improvement is, is needed, in some ways I'm proud. You know, it's not in every country can you go in and get treatment like that, right? I'm from India. My, my grandma had breast cancer there. I saw, I've seen firsthand kind of the differences in the healthcare system. So in one way, uh, I am profoundly, profoundly grateful for all the innovation that's happened. And I'm profoundly grateful to be part of any change that's needed, right? And then on the other hand, of course, I'm so upset. You know, you brought up the maternal um, death rate in this country. It's profoundly sad, right? It's devastating. So I kind of, I hold those two things in balance, my anger and my gratitude. And this idea of empowering patients, um, Serbi, we both live in San Francisco. The language of San Francisco is empowerment or the language of Silicon Valley of places like Y Combinator. 
But do you think most people want to be empowered, especially when it comes to their health? And many of us, and particularly people perhaps without our privileges, don't even know how to be empowered. Yeah, you know, I think that in some way, we will always want our doctors to be confident experts in their field. But at the same time, what I think empowerment really means as a patient is knowledge, right? It's medical speak, just like legalese can be really confusing. And it's hard for us to know exactly what's going on. So I think that empowerment of the patient actually begins with knowledge. And some of the medical knowledge being translated so that a lay person can truly understand what's going on with their condition. You know, I've been in the room before when a physician was explaining a condition that a patient had, and they're finding it out for the first time. And the physician walks away and they turn to me and they say, what, you know? And so I think having reliable sources of information for, pa for patients to kind of read and understand what their next steps are and having access to physicians who hopefully aren't burnt out. And I think physician burnout is another huge crisis facing this country. Yeah, um, we've done a number of shows on that. Yeah, is, uh, is one step towards empowerment. When it comes to empowerment, there are some people who believe that we're on the verge of a new empowered age because of AI. You're at Y Combinator now. The former head of Y Combinator, Sam Altman, is the founder of OpenAI. Other founders are uh, Jessica Livingstone, Paul Graham's I think, wife or associate, who uh, also was uh, very much involved with Open uh, with with Y Combinator. There seems to be an intimacy between the Open AI revolution and Y Combinator. Can AI, uh, the the revolution that we seem to be almost in the midst of? Can it help us empower patients or could it only compound all the inequalities and dysfunctionalities and injustices of, of our current medical system? Oh, I think it can absolutely help if harnessed by the right people in the right way. Um, I can give well, you're you- not answering my I mean, that, that goes without saying, but do we have the right people? <laughs> I think so. I can give you an example. There's a company I invested in called Glass AI, and it's founded actually by a physician who went to UCSF and then dropped out of residency at the Brigham to work on this uh, to work on this technology. And then he found a very um, a fantastic engineer as a co-founder. And what they're working on uh, is incredible and would help with physician burnout. It would help with patients getting the right diagnostic information quicker. It's a um, generative AI, uh, generative AI software where you enter demographic information about the patient and what their symptoms are. And it will generate for you a extensive plan of what all of the different diagnoses for the patient can be. And just so that folks understand, usually this is just done by the the physician's memory, right? Okay, I'm seeing this symptom and that symptom, so maybe it's this disease. So imagine harnessing the power of AI and generating this detailed list with reasons of what all of the different disease states could be for the physician to then review. It, gener it saves the physician time as well because it's already documented there and they can edit that document. 
but it also makes it so the patient has more thorough answers, you know? And, uh, I just love that. I, I love that concept. And this is someone, you know, this isn't someone that was traditionally from tech that's starting this. This is a physician who fundamentally believes in the good of patients who dropped out to start this. So uh, absolutely, I can say that, at, you know, I don't know about everyone working on AI. I can't speak to that. But in my experience, the people that are working on AI in the healthcare system can do so much good. There's another company that uh, Diffuse that's working on um, machines, uh, working on generative AI for protein folding. And it, that's just going to increase our uh, drug discovery capabilities by so by I just I can't even describe by how how much faster it'll be, how much better it'll be to have something like this. So I'm personally I'm personally very excited about it. Let's end with that on 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 the physician front. You mentioned the physician. Some people fear that AI will replace the physician. What is uh, Serbisana? What is the future of the doctor of the physician in our new age of generative AI? I think that uh, physicians hold such an important place in society. It's one of the hardest most difficult jobs, not only to obtain, but keep because of all the burnout issues, because of how much pressure there is in the position. But I think that will continue. I think that that not even, I have not talked to a single person who's in the generative AI field who indeed thinks that AI is going to replace the physician. I do think that education is irreplaceable. The physician's role is irreplaceable.